Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Record levels of water and widespread power outages, Hurricane Idalia brings destruction to a region of Florida not used to such storms. Defendants are pleading not guilty to election-related charges in Georgia, and some have moved to waive their next court appearances. Will Trump do the same? A federal judge today sanctioned Rudy Giuliani by declaring him liable for defaming two Georgia election workers. Find out what the penalty is. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezes again on camera. During an exchange with reporters in Kentucky, he abruptly stopped speaking. Social media platform X is going to allow political ads. What might this mean for politicians, voters and election integrity? And military officers in Gabon announced they've seized power. That's just minutes after the country's president was named winner of a presidential election. Idalia is traveling through Georgia and the Carolinas after making landfall in Florida early this morning. The hurricane has been downgraded to a tropical storm as of about an hour ago. At least two people were killed and hundreds of thousands are without power. John Hahi from the Epoch Times reports for us. Idalia made landfall in Florida's Gulf Coast as a Category 3 hurricane Wednesday morning. It's the strongest hurricane to make landfall in Florida's Big Bend region in more than 125 years. Towns just east of Tallahassee were the worst affected areas. Hurricane of this magnitude, you know, you're talking about months uh, that are going to go into some of the things when you start talking about rebuilding uh, and even beyond that. And so we understand that and, and we're in it for the long haul. According to the Florida Highway Patrol, at least two men were killed in separate weather-related car accidents, one in Gainesville and one in Pasco County. Rescue efforts are underway around the state. I spoke with local residents in Tarpon Springs. We know a lot of the other business owners down here, and they were doing the same thing. Like, we're going to go assess, to see what happened, and then we'll go from there. But, like, we looked at it, and there's no way. There's no way we could reopen. Roughly 280,000 customers were without power in Florida, plus another 200,000 in Georgia. Storm surges from Idalia is setting records for highest water levels in multiple locations from Tampa Bay through the Big Bend. The storm was forecast to cause coastal flooding of up to 16 feet. My father owns that place right there, oh, really? Billy Monty. He said, he said the water was up to right here. It was the craziest thing I've ever heard. I've never seen tarpon like this in my life, and, you know? I pray for the people out here because I've seen a lot of people's houses got flooded, you know. According to Flight Aware, roughly 1,000 flights were canceled Wednesday due to Hurricane Idalia. Tampa International Airport, St. Pete, Clearwater International Airport reopened Wednesday afternoon. Idalia traveled through Georgia as a Category 1 storm Wednesday afternoon with sustained winds of 75 miles per hour. The National Hurricane Center predicts flash floods across Georgia and the eastern Carolinas through Thursday. John, good to have you with us. It looks like there's a stop sign behind you, but tell us what you're seeing around you. Give us a sense of the space there. Well, mostly where uh, where we've been, which is north of Tampa, and this is 65 miles, uh, 75 miles north of Tampa. We're in Homososa, and uh, that this is the flooded Homososa River, and these roads, and most of the roads in this area are flooded. Um, high tide is at 6:15, so the the waters are actually rising, and uh, some people, some of the residents who did not evacuate, did not have to evacuate. Um, 
say that it's the water is actually higher now than it was 12 hours ago. So this is going to be a continuing event. I mean, the hurricane was the event. The storm surge and the uh, coastal flooding is something that's going to persist for days. And John, media reports are saying calling the storm catastrophic. But for those locals who are staying there, who are hunkering down, what is the sentiment among them? Uh, they, they, well, just the ones we spoke to. And, and remember, this we, we're primarily in central Florida, south in the Tampa Bay area, um, north of Tampa Bay, central Florida. And most of those people are pretty, you know, are, are actually relieved. They, they feel like they've dodged a bullet. Um, it was. You know, we, we always get these forecasts, especially in the Tampa Bay area, about, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, it's going to be hit by a hurricane. And, of course, that hasn't happened in a long time. Um, and usually they go south or they go north. And in this case, this one did pretty much, uh, Idalia pretty much followed the, pro the projected track that kind of evolved on Monday. It pretty much stuck right to that track. So, um so it wasn't a big surprise as we got closer to the storm. But, uh, yeah, most people feel like yeah, they, they dodged a bullet that, uh, you know, the water will go down. Um, and and it, once again, this is a this, you don't need a hurricane or a storm event for you to have coastal flooding here. It's a daily chronic event. So so the, it's aggravated by the, by the storm, but it's not something people here are unfamiliar with. So the it this neck of the woods it's uh, relatively calm and uh, per, people are pretty uh, are, are are pretty appreciative of not having their houses destroyed. Uh, for the most part, things in this neck of the woods, you know, 117 miles south of landfall, um, are you know is pretty calm and uh, people are are getting you know getting back to work uh, you know as long as they can get through the water. Well, John, thank you so much for that report and stay safe out there. You bet. Thank you. Meanwhile, President Biden vows to do everything he can to help the states impacted by Idalia. But questions are mounting over whether funding will soon be depleted. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What did the president tell us today? Good evening to you. So President Biden said today that he has called the governors of Florida, Georgia, as well as South Carolina to make clear that they're going to have everything they need to respond to Hurricane Adelia, which he says has weakened but continues to be very dangerous. And he has also stressed that despite the political differences that he might have with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, those differences will not impede their cooperation when it comes to helping people get through this hurricane. Watch. I think he trusts my judgment and my desire to help, and I trust him to be able to suggest that he's, this is not about politics, it's about taking care of the people of the state. If there's anything, anything the states need right now, I'm ready to mobilize that support of what they need. The Biden administration has mobilized over 1,500 federal personnel to support the state's response to Hurricane Adelia. And DeSantis, who has also vowed to put differences aside, told Biden this morning in a call that all of his needs had so far been met. But concerns are mounting after the FEMA administrator warned that the agency could soon run out of money without additional funding from Congress. And President Biden said he tried to assure Americans that the federal government will have enough money to get through this hurricane season. Watch. How can we not respond? My God, how can we not respond to these needs? 
And so I'm confident, even though there's a lot of talk from some of our friends up on the Hill about the cost, we got to do it. This is the United States of America. Some Republicans in Congress, including Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, have been criticizing the Biden administration for trying to tie money to FEMA with additional funding to Ukraine. And that's as President Biden today announced a $95 million funding to improve the electrical grid in Maui, where wildfires earlier this month killed over 100 people. Last week, Biden took a break from his vacation to visit Maui in person. But today, when asked if he's going to change his vacation plan this upcoming weekend amid Hurricane Nadalia, Biden says he's not sure but may do it. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. And will Trump waive his Georgia arraignment? Other defendants in the case have. NTD's Molina Weisscup explains what that would mean and has the latest from the only co-defendant to be held in jail. Harrison Floyd has been released on a $100,000 bail after spending six days in jail. He was the only co-defendant in this case that chose not to enter a pre-arranged bail agreement before going to the jail to surrender, which is why he had to stay in jail and the other defendants did not. Now, he and the others are set for an arraignment at that Georgia court next Wednesday, and this will be much different than the previous arraignments involving the former president, not only because there are so many people involved, but also because the judge has ruled that cameras will be allowed. Now, of the 19 defendants, three of them have already entered not guilty pleas, the most recent being Sidney Powell, who's an attorney who challenged the election results in the state of Georgia. Powell and others have also waived their court appearance, meaning they don't have to go. This is an option put forth by the Fulton County Superior Court. Defendants can either choose to waive their appearance altogether or just choose to appear virtually. Now the question is whether former President Trump will choose this same path of waiving his court appearance and not physically showing up to the court. His lawyers have not yet filed to do so, but we are keeping an eye on this because if Trump does choose this path, this will be different than all of the previous indictments because it will be the first time that the former president chooses not to appear in court. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani may have to pay a significant financial penalty to two election workers after a federal judge today found him liable for defaming them. NTD's illegal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Federal Judge Beryl Howell today sanctioned former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani in a defamation case filed by two Georgia election workers. The sanction, an automatic judgment against him, which means that he is liable for defamation. Attorneys for the workers requested it after Giuliani failed to comply with two previous orders to produce information. The workers are Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shea Moss. They accused Giuliani and others of making false claims in connection with a video that appeared to show poll workers pulling boxes of ballots out from under a tablecloth. In 2022, Freeman said in testimony to the January 6th committee that her reputation was ruined. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay, to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen. In May 2022, Freeman and Moss made their first document request. 
But Giuliani claimed that the FBI seized his electronic devices in 2021, causing him to lose access to some of his accounts. The judge rejected that argument, saying Giuliani should have been able to access his accounts online or with other devices, or at least he should have taken steps to preserve electronic data. In July, Giuliani conceded in a court filing that he made false statements when he said Freeman and Moss mishandled ballots during the 2020 election. But the judge today said that concession was no excuse for failing to comply with court orders. He granted the plaintiff's request for thousands of dollars in attorney's fees and costs, which he said they could partially obtain from Giuliani's businesses. The judge also said in the order that a combination of other sanctions would be imposed on Giuliani. A trial on damages and punitive damages will be held in the coming weeks. Despite today's ruling, Giuliani is still on the hook to provide information detailing his finances. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Now zooming in on a high-profile January 6th defendant, the sentencing hearing for former Proud Boys leader Enrique Terrio was delayed abruptly this morning. The Justice Department said the hearing was postponed due to an emergency right before it was supposed to begin. The judge in the case, U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly, is sick. The sentencing hearing for Terrio is now rescheduled for next Tuesday, September 5th. He was convicted of seditious conspiracy and several other felonies for his role in the January 6th Capitol breach. The Justice Department is requesting a 33-year prison sentence for Terrio. The sentencing for another Proud Boys member was also pushed back from today until Friday. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today appeared to freeze on camera yet again, this time during a press gaggle in his home state of Kentucky. When asked about the possibility of running for re-election in 2026, McConnell started to respond but abruptly stopped speaking and began to stare into the distance for roughly 10 seconds. An aide then stepped in and asked if he had heard the reporter. McConnell said yes but continued looking straight ahead. The 81-year-old senator suffered a concussion back in March and was hospitalized for a few days. Fast forward to July when a similar episode occurred. McConnell went silent in the middle of a sentence while speaking at a weekly GOP press conference at the Capitol. Coming up, social media platform X is going to allow political ads. What might this mean for politicians, voters and election integrity? Military officers in Gabon announced they've seized power just minutes after the country's president was named winner of a presidential election. What does this mean for democracy in the increasingly unstable region in Africa? And Ukraine strikes deep inside Russia. Find out what the drones hit at nearly the same time that Russia launched an attack on Kyiv, killing at least two people. More in a moment here on NTD News. Do political ads have a place on social media? X, formerly called Twitter, is now allowing ads from political campaigns. We spoke with an expert in election integrity and election law reform to find out what this means. Hans von Spakovsky, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Sure, thanks for having me. 
It seems X, or formerly Twitter, is now going to allow political advertising in the U.S. from candidates and political parties. So to begin, right. what is the significance of this, and how does that fit into federal campaign laws? Well, uh, it, that's perfectly legal. It's not any different from the fact that uh, uh, TV, uh, t television channels uh, also uh, allow political advertising to occur. And in fact, um, the Federal Election Commission, where I used to be a commissioner, which regulates uh, the federal campaign finance law, uh, many years ago actually put out regulations that govern advertisements that uh, appear over the internet for uh, candidates and political parties. And given this policy reversal, how could this impact how candidates promote campaigns or how their message reaches voters? Well, like I said, it's important for folks to understand that this is a policy change. It was never illegal for X uh, to do this. And obviously, look, this gives uh, candidates and political parties a much broader reach for a lot cheaper price than it pay, than it costs to to uh, produce an ad and get it broadcast on television whether it's satellite TV or cable channels or anything else you know the internet is relatively cheap in comparison to other broadcast media so this is going to give candidates the ability to get their message out uh, even quicker faster and broader than they have before and switching gears a little bit, it seems in the past election, there's been a lot of surveys out postmortemly saying that, oh, if more people had known about the Hunter Biden laptop, they would have voted differently. What's your take on the role of social media in that? Well, look, a lot of people do pay attention to social media. Uh, on the other hand, many other voters don't. Uh, clearly, the folks that pay the most attention to it are the younger generations. Um, Folks uh, in the younger generations, in their 20s, for example, they don't vote in as high a number as do uh, older Americans. You know, the, the most votes you get are for people uh, in their upper 50s and 60s. So it might not have as big effect on those voters, but I think on younger voters, yeah, it could, it could have quite an effect and it could change minds depending on what kind of information comes out. And now looking at this upcoming election, President Trump, former President Trump, is currently the front runner in the Republican Party. He's calling these indictments against him election interference. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I've written a lot about uh, these indictments uh, using both my background as a lawyer and my background in election law to look at them. And I have to tell you, that uh, the federal indictment uh, the, in D.C., the indictment in Georgia, the indictment in Manhattan, all of them, I think, are spurious indictments. Um, they are not based on valid legal grounds. I think the only indictment that actually has some legs to it is the indictment uh, down in Florida involving the supposed mishandling of classified documents. But as, as you and I both know, uh, it seems to actually have increased support for the president. Uh, that's what the polling shows, uh, because I think people are looking at this and they think this is actually uh, political persecution of the president. He has gotten a lot of campaign donations from that. But right. with this election season ramping up, what should voters be aware of when it comes to election integrity? Well, things are actually better in 2024, or will be. Uh, 
than they were in 2020. And the reason for that is that uh, many states actually, their state legislatures realized after 2020 that they had problems. They had holes in their system that needed to be fixed. And many states passed improvements, reforms um, that uh, made things better. I mean, the best example is the fact that uh, states like Georgia passed laws, uh, one, prohibiting private contributions by political donors like Mark Zuckerberg to local election offices, which I think was used to manipulate election results. And also, they extended voter ID requirements from in-person to mail-in balloting, since so many people vote with absentee ballots today. Indeed. And Hans von Spakovsky, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thousands of social media accounts are being linked to the world's largest disinformation campaign. The driving force behind it, the Chinese Communist Party, and its machinations to change people's opinions on China. Facebook and Instagram parent company Meta says it uncovered a disinformation campaign with ties to Chinese law enforcement. The company took down more than 7,700 Facebook accounts and over 900 pages. Meta tied these accounts to a previous disinformation campaign called Spamiflage. The company made the announcement in its new quarterly threat report, saying, Taken together, we estimate Spamiflage to be the largest known cross-platform covert influence operation to date. Accounts tied to the Spamiflage network usually publish posts praising China while criticizing the U.S. and American policies. One example is a text regarding the origins of COVID, which was translated into eight different languages and published in separate posts. The English version of the post read, Great clue. Suspicious U.S. seafood received before the outbreak at Huanan Seafood Market. However, these accounts don't seem to be very successful. Meta told CNBC, these operations are big, but they're clumsy, and what we're not seeing is any real sign that they're building authentic audiences on our platform or elsewhere on the Internet. In its quarterly threat report, Meta also said it found ill-intended activity from Russian accounts. The company reportedly blocked thousands of malicious website domains as well as attempts to run fake accounts and pages. Those accounts were focused mostly on changing people's perception of the Russia-Ukraine war. Gabon's President Ali Bongo, whose family have ruled the country for 56 years, was named winner of a presidential election today, only for military officers to appear on television minutes later to announce that they had seized power. David Doyle reports. Crowds cheered the military in Gabon on Wednesday after a group of senior officers claimed to have seized power. That television announcement came just minutes after incumbent President Ali Bongo had been announced the winner of a recent election. The officers, who said they represented all Gabonese security and defence forces, said they had decided to defend peace by putting an end to the current regime. The general elections of August 26, 2023, as well as the truncated results, are cancelled. The borders are closed until further notice. All institutions of the republic are dissolved. Bongo's family has ruled oil-producing but poor Gabon for more than half a century. His detractors say he has done little to channel the country's oil wealth towards the population, a third of whom live in poverty. There was no immediate comment from Gabon's government and no immediate reports on Bongo's whereabouts. He'd been announced the winner of a third term with nearly two-thirds of the vote. 
but there were concerns over the transparency of the electoral process amid a lack of international observers as well as an internet blackout and nighttime curfew after the poll. The military takeover, if successful, will be West and Central Africa's eighth coup since 2020. In other countries such as Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso, struggles against jihadist insurgencies have eroded faith in democracy. Gabon is not facing the same challenges. However, a coup would demonstrate a further shift away from democracy in an increasingly volatile region. Tensions between Ukraine and Russia appear to be escalating to a new level. Ukrainian drones penetrated deep into Russian territory overnight, striking multiple targets. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. On Wednesday, Ukrainian drones struck targets in at least six regions, including Moscow, deep into Russian territory. This was reportedly the biggest drone strike in Russia since Russia invaded Ukraine. One of the targets hit was a Russian airfield hundreds of miles from the Ukrainian border. And at least four military transport planes were destroyed, confirmed by Russia's own state media. The Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman said according to preliminary information, there were no casualties due to the drone strikes. Nevertheless, Ukrainian drone attacks on civilian objects confirmed the terrorist essence of the Kyiv regime once again. It's clear that Ukrainian drones weren't able to fly those distances without assistance from Western satellite information. The Ukrainian drone strikes happened around the same time Russia sent its own devastating attack on Ukraine's capital of Kyiv. Moscow said it hit command and intelligence targets. But Kyiv residents don't seem to agree. Humans do no such things. There are no military objects here, nothing. Just an apartment block, rest area. The missiles fell in the park. Ukraine's military said they shot down all 28 Russian missiles and 15 out of 16 drones launched overnight. But Ukrainian authorities said at least two people were still killed as debris from the intercepted missiles fell in four locations. Ukraine's Western allies generally prohibit Ukraine from using weapons they supply to attack Russia. But they say Ukraine has a right to carry out strikes in Russia with its own weapons. Jason Perry. NTD News. Coming up, we hear from a school district that's being sued by California. That's because teachers in the district have to inform parents about their child's gender identity. A school district secretly allowed a student to socially transition. The mom sued and won as parental rights remain a hotly debated topic in California schools. A jewelry store heist in which half a million dollars worth of items are stolen. It's the latest smash and grab to hit Southern California. And job openings in the U.S. dropped to their lowest level in almost two and a half years. What does this mean for the labor market? An economist shares his analysis. These stories and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Hurricane Idalia makes landfall in Florida's Big Bend region as a Category 3 storm. It's moving across Georgia and towards the Carolinas as a Category 1 hurricane. 
A federal judge finds former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani liable for defamation against two election workers in Georgia. They had sued him for alleging that they mishandled ballots during the 2020 election. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezes again on camera. During an exchange with reporters in Kentucky, he abruptly stopped speaking and began to stare into the distance for roughly 10 seconds. Military officers in Gabon announce a coup against the country's president. This follows the president's win in an election in the West African nation. A group of pro-life activists is now found guilty after protesting at an abortion facility back in 2020. They are accused of conspiring with each other to shut down the clinic. Authorities have taken all five of them into custody as their lawyers prepare for an appeal. Right now, each defendant is facing up to 11 years behind bars and a maximum $350,000 fine. Court documents show that the activists entered the clinic and stood with their arms locked in front of the staff entrance. A mother in Northern California won a lawsuit against a school district. She claims her daughter was, quote, transitioned without her consent. This comes a day after the state sued a Southern California school district for requiring schools to notify parents if their child identifies as a different gender. Entity's Eileen Ang has the story. Jessica Conan claimed her 11-year-old daughter, Alicia, was socially transitioned to a boy without her knowledge or consent. She filed a $100,000 lawsuit with the Spreckles Union School District in Monterey County and won. We are now receiving justice from the school that decided to try to transition my daughter behind my back. Uh, this is so wrong, and this settlement right here proves in the public eye. According to Fox News, Conan alleges that the school district told Alicia she may be unhappy because she didn't know who she, quote, truly was inside. And then she was allowed to use the boys' bathroom and male pronouns. NTD reached out to the board members of the Spreckles Union School District, but didn't hear back by airtime. This comes after Attorney General Rob Bonta sued the Chino Valley Unified School District on Monday for requiring schools to notify parents that their children identify as a different gender. Chino Valley Unified School District Board President Sonia Shaw has been vocal about supporting parental rights over their own children. The board voted to notify parents within three days if their child wants to change their gender. All that's saying is we're going to bring the parent in the picture because we do know, um, you know, from parents coming forward that there is these uh, inappropriate conversations between teachers and students. There is inappropriate things that are happening. Um, so to me, this policy made sense to put those safeguards in place to let them know if you do have these things. There is Shaw says she has received many death threats targeting her and her family, and one person has even been arrested. But she still pushes on because she has people who support her and are in the same boat who want to expose those targeting their children. She believes that it's important to let the parents talk to their children when they feel upset. But it can also be a very good thing if the parents are involved and they're part of the process, right? Because they're now knowing that their child's talking to this person. And I think that's very important to respect those different households' um, traditions or their values or their morals. And if we try to be the ones as a school district to de determine the, you know, the morals and the values, that's going to only hurt the child. Chino Valley assured that the parent notification policy does protect students. If they believe a student could be in danger, abused, or hurt by their parent or guardian, the district would not notify them. 
Staying in California, a gang of smash-and-grab thieves is still on the loose following their recent raid on a jewelry store. Indeed's Christina Corona has more from Pasadena. We're here in Pasadena where a smash-and-grab robbery took place at this jewelry store behind me. It only took a few minutes, but the thieves got away with half a million dollars worth of jewelry. We spoke to the owner of Jewels on Lake, Sam Babikian, who tells us he was helping a customer. And as she exited the store, the thieves came in. And then uh, as a gentleman, I tried to open the door for her. As soon as I opened the front door, oh. they pepper sprayed me right on my face, two inch away from my face, and I got blind. And then, and then suddenly I thought uh, I should look for the panic button, and I went my way and I pushed the panic button while they were in the shop. I couldn't see nothing. I didn't see their faces. I didn't see what's happening. All I can see is the smashing and grabbing, and I knew what was happening, even though I couldn't see. Babikian says he and one other worker were in the store during the robbery, both getting pepper sprayed. The police and paramedics arrived shortly after he hit the panic button. And how many thousands of dollars worth of jewelry did the suspects get away with? It's very hard to say. Well, I mean, estimate that I've been giving with 600, 700, or I don't know, 500, 800, I really don't know. Until we go in the books and then we'll see what's happening. And Babikian tells us the next step for Jules on Lake. I came here today to, for the cleanup process. I'll clean the glasses and uh, I talk to the insurance and then they, I go step by step, whatever they advise me to do. First is the showcases that we need to fix. The Pasadena Police Department says this incident is still under investigation and no arrests have been made. Officials are looking at surveillance from the store and within the community to identify these suspects. Christina Corona, NTD News, Pasadena. The latest job openings and labor turnover survey or JOLTS report says that U.S. job openings have fallen to the lowest level in over two years. What does this unexpected drop tell us about the labor market? For answers, we spoke with Pete Earle, an economist at the American Institute for Economic Research. Pete Earle, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Seems job openings have fallen below nine million for the first time in over two years. What is that telling us about the state of the labor market, especially? Yeah, what's notable uh, is that the JOLTS number, uh, it's a statistic that covers job openings, uh, was predicted to be 9.5 million, uh, and it came in at 8.8 million, which is a huge miss. Um, and in addition to that, the prior number was revised down about half a million jobs. So that 8.8 .8 million number that actually came in is the lowest in over two years, and it, that goes back to the initial recovery from COVID. So in terms of job openings for the past two years, we hit a low in March and April of 2020 for obvious reasons. And then what it looks like is that we had a peak in April or May of 2022, and it's been downward uh, slowly, but in a downward trend ever since. And Pete, what's behind this number? Are more people leaving their jobs, less being hired, both? Yeah, so the, the available positions number dropped substantially, as did the rate of quitting. So what it suggests is that companies are being cautious about the future, and thus they're they're reluctant to add to their headcount. And employees, at the same time, are worried about their ability to find jobs, uh, so they're staying put more. And, Pete, the report is noting that, quote, a smaller number of workers quit their jobs in July. So what's the reason here? Are people feeling uncertain, or what's here? <laughs> 
Yeah, a few things. So um, the first and most likely reason is that people are concerned that if they leave a job, they'll have trouble finding a new one. Um, the second is that people are concerned that if they find a new job, it may be at lower pay or for less hours. And the third is that generally, uh, despite a you know a good GDP number and all that, the economy is slowing. We have mortgage rates have doubled in two years. We have credit card and auto payment uh, delinquencies up. Um, and a statistic was recently published saying that the average family's monthly expenses are $700 higher now than they were two years ago. So for that reason, people are, uh, are staying put and they're being very cautious about uh, bringing new uncertainty into their employment and thus their financial lives. And Pete, to highlight another number, the report is noting that there's 1.5 job openings for each unemployed person last month. It seems it used to be closer to 2.0. So do you see the market tightening further here? I don't think the market can tighten much further, especially with consumers looking as if they're about to back away. You know, we have um, uh, tightening credit interest rates are rising, uh, aggregate pandemic savings are almost worked through, and uh, really important, student loan payments are set to begin again for tens of millions of Americans in October. So I think job openings could get a little tighter, but the prevailing direction over the next year, I think, is probably for more slack. And on that note, is this an example of the Fed rate hikes working? Is the economy slowing? Yeah, definitely. So th this is the effect of the Fed tightening uh, at the most aggressive pace that it has in 40 years. But I mean, it's you know it's important to, m to remember that the economy is not a machine, and the Fed are not engineers or, or airline pilots. So it's very easy to overcontract the same way uh, they overexpanded the money supply early in the pandemic. That's where we got the the uh, the uh, inflation. Um, inflation's coming down, but unfortunately, uh, in the job market, there's likely to be some collateral damage. Whether we have a soft landing or not, it's very much up in the air right now. And Pete, speaking of inflation, what do all of these signs mean in terms of inflation? After the uh, after the JOLTS number was released, Treasury bond prices spiked up and the yields, which is their interest rate, fell. And this is because of the uh, surprisingly soft job number, which means that basically um, the market thinks that another Fed rate hike later in the year might not be needed. So if job openings continue to fall and it takes uh, upward pressure off of wages and lowers the demand for goods and services, we'll see inflation, uh, price the price level, fall. But looking at the whole saga over the last couple of years, um, it probably would have been better not to print trillions of dollars in the spring of 2020. All you know, if we if we look back then, would have been better not to do that. Does seem like our pocketbooks are feeling it now. But Pete Earl, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Coming up, news organizations are blocking ChatGPT from scanning their content. Find out why some media firms consider artificial intelligence an existential threat. And don't fall for the number one text message scam. We'll tell you what it is after we return with NTD News. Welcome back. Is ChatGPT a potential threat to traditional news? Media firms are taking defensive steps, blocking ChatGPT from reading their content. Entity's Faye Quarter asks a news industry professional for her thoughts. Media firms already in a tough spot now see ChatGPT as a potential threat. AI chatbots like ChatGPT have shocked the world. 
with their awesome power to answer any prompt with a sophisticated, human-like answer. To provide these answers, a chatbot needs to analyze content. Media firms ranging from the New York Times to ABC News are now blocking ChatGPT from reading their content by putting code into their websites. President of the News Media Alliance, Danielle Coffey, says news organizations are alarmed by the technology. One publisher told her it is an existential threat. Calling it a threat is kind of a jerk reaction to something that is new. Christina Nicholson is a former TV anchor and reporter. Currently the CEO of PR firm Media Maven, Nicholson says media firms shouldn't be blocking ChatGPT. We don't know where this information comes from when we use ChatGPT. So by a reputable news organization blocking their information from ChatGPT, we may be getting bogus information because instead of going to website A, they're going to go to website Z. Firms worry future news consumers will just let AI give them the news. AI would do it using the very content from traditional media firms. If the media firms go down, AI won't have quality news content to learn from. Nicholson says it's still too early to have a long-term plan to deal with this. Faye Quarter, NTD News. What's the number one text message scam that's putting your hard-earned money at risk? And how can you identify and avoid it? We speak with NTD Business's Don Ma to find out. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure, Tiffany. Don, what is the number one tech scam that people are falling for? All right, uh, Tiff, you ready for this? The most reported text message scam, uh, according to the Federal Trade Commission, is bank impersonations. So reports of bank impersonations by text in 2022 jumped 20 times the number reported uh, compared to 2019, Tiff. That is wild. And are people actually falling for these scams? You know, unfortunately, I have to say a lot of people are falling for this. And it's not just bank impersonations. According to the FTC, consumers reported a loss of more than $330 million to text message scams in 2022. 2022. And the thing is, cash lost because of bank fraud or scams isn't even covered by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or National Credit Union Administration. Wow, and Don, tell us about the tactics these scammers are using to get people to fall for them. Yeah, great question, Tiff. So text message scammers you know, we'll do things like trying to make you feel like an action is required immediately. It may come as an urgent message warning you to call, you know, or click on a link because of alleged suspicious activity. Uh, major banks were actually very popular choices for scammers to impersonate in 2022. And according to the FTC, the most common scam text messages often claim to be from large banks. That's like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, Citibank. And let me just describe to you one particular kind of text scam. Um, this, this method resulted in a median loss of $3,000 in 2022. So according to the FTC, uh, it goes something like this. You get a text message from someone impersonating your bank and it's giving you instructions to reply with a yes or no message to confirm or deny suspicious transactions. And once you replied, the scammer would call you under the guise of helping you. But their ultimate goal here is to try to either fraudulently transfer money out of your account or obtain personal information like a social security number. So that's just a few tactics here. 
And Don, given how serious this is, any tips on how to identify these and how to tell what's the real bank versus these fake ones? Right, uh, another very good question. So with any decision about your finances, avoid taking actions when you feel scared, stressed, or pressured. This is, this is really the key rule of thumb here. Don't make money moves under pressure. Your bank will not use pressure tactics against you. And another tip is, is don't click on any links that are texted to you. Always confirm the text message is telling you um, is real by going to official websites, whether that's uh, your bank website or a postal service website. And, and finally, if a text message is telling you to call a number or respond, you know, just don't do it. Always double check anything you find suspicious or raising red flags. But if you should happen to fall for a text scammer impersonating your bank, alert your bank and of the incident and make sure no money is leaving your account fraudulently. Some life tips right there, Don Ma. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tiffany. If you have any news tips or feedback for this show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.